attend the first Sunday of the month, which means we were able to celebrate the Lord's table together. Um, I really, I really enjoy celebrating the Lord's table. Um, I, I occasionally, in my mind, think about the logistics of what it would take for us to do it every Sunday. I haven't worked out all the logistics in my mind yet, but uh, it would be something someday I would like to, to see happen. Um, but anyway, but I really, part of what I, I like about it on the first day of the year is thinking about those words, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. Remember, remembering is, is an important thing. You know, for 2,000 years now, followers of Jesus have, have done this very same thing that we've done. Maybe slightly different forms, you know, that sort of thing. But, but in remembrance of him. In remembrance of his coming, and of his living, and his dying, and his rising from the dead, and his coming again someday. When, when we're, we hold the bread, as I talked about, we're reminded that he came in the flesh. That God condescended to become one of us to redeem us. When we drink the cup, we're reminded of the price that was paid to cleanse us of our sins. And then when we hear those words that Joe read for us in the scripture earlier, that Jesus will not drink this cup again until he drinks it anew with us in his kingdom, we're reminded that someday he's going to come back, as uh, the creed says, to judge the living and the dead. But the truth is, if we really think about it, we are honestly bad at remembering. God knows this. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus instituted the Lord's table in the first place. He knows we're not really good at remembering things. Consider that for the majority of the existence of Christ's church, the average follower of Jesus did not have a Bible. Even after Mr. Gutenberg invented his printing press, as Bibles started to be printed, it would have been out of reach to purchase one for the majority of people. Now, if you have the most basic of smartphones, you can download one for free. What a time to be alive. Amazing. If you happen to be an English speaker, which all of you are, you can get multiple translations. It's incredible. But for the majority of the time since Christ left, it has not been that way. But everybody could be reminded through this object lesson of the communion bread and the cup of Jesus and what he did and who he was. Now throughout the pre-literate time of the church, remember that, that even widespread literacy is a relatively modern thing. Very modern that the majority of people can, can read. <laughs> The church has tried to come up with a lot of different ways to help people remember, because we know we're forgetful. Maybe you've been in a church with beautiful stained glass windows that have on them various scenes from the last day of Jesus' life. Those are called the Stations of the Cross. A great deal of medieval and Renaissance art is devoted to stories from the Bible. Ways for people to remember. Even in the ancient Roman catacombs, where many believers were buried, 
They are filled with art, hand-drawn art on the walls, depicting stories from the Bible, with early Christian symbols like the fish and the anchor. Remember, the cross is not a symbol of Christianity until after Constantine. The earliest Christian symbols were the anchor, right, and the fish. All these things designed to help us remember, because in the day-to-day -day busyness of life and in working and eating and raising children, all these things that people have done for thousands of years, just trying to get by, it's easy to forget. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to not focus on what's truly important and truly eternal. This would not have been tremendously different for Israel. I mean, it's not like the average Israelite, you know, at the time of Jesus or even after, would have had their own set of Torah scrolls just there at home in a nice little box. Even a well-funded synagogue in the time of Jesus and the time of Paul may not have had all the prophets and all the writings. They would have had a Torah scroll for sure because you couldn't have a synagogue if you didn't have a Torah. But that didn't necessarily mean you had Daniel or Ezekiel. That sort of thing. Paper was fragile and precious and expensive. <coughs> Everything was copied by hand. Hard to imagine. Yet, in the synagogue, they made sure regularly concentrate on the public reading of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. It's a key point of synagogue worship. And just as we sing hymns and worship songs, right? We sang four songs this morning. Um, there, was, there was singing of songs for them. And their song book, of course, was the book we call Psalms. Some of them are sort of instruction, and some of them are kind of worshipful, right? Especially near the end of the end of the Psalms, a lot of worship, you know, praise the Lord for this, praise the Lord for that. Um, and some are like the psalm I've been meditating on this week, Psalm 78. I'm going to read you the first eight verses of Psalm 78. A masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established the testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of it, because Psalm 78 is actually the second longest psalm in the book of Psalms. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. Psalm 78 has 72 verses. And Psalm 89, the third longest psalm, drops all the way down to 53 verses, and they go down from that. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. That would be the sermon. Which, I mean, maybe that would be okay. 
But after these first eight verses of Asaph telling us why he's writing this song, he spends the next 64 verses doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Telling of the amazing works of God for Israel. He talks about the Red Sea, and he talks about the water from the rock, and the manna from heaven, and all this great stuff. <laughs> and he also talks about the times Israel acted like a bunch of boneheads. And there's plenty of those too, right? And the times where God had to punish them for their disobedience. Now, not everybody had a Torah. But everybody could learn and sing the psalm and remember the mighty works of God and also be reminded of the times Israel failed to live up to their part of the covenant. That's why these songs are written, so that they could remember. The first eight verses tells us why he does that. He's wise written this psalm, the mighty works of the Lord, the failures of Israel. Because he wants every generation to remember, to know about God and his marvelous works, to tell and to retell, so that every generation would do some things. And it's those three phrases in bold that I want to give attention to briefly this morning. Verse 7, Asaph writes, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now, the first thing I want you to note about these things here is that these phrases are active and performative. They're active words, right? Set. Not forget. Keep. They're things to do. You have to do something. They're not going to happen by accident. They're not going to just happen by some mystically intransitive osmosis and maybe if you just put your Bible under your pillow at night and sleep on your Bible, that somehow all the mighty works of God will fill your brain. It's not going to happen. Doesn't work that way. Wish it did. I mean, maybe if you had the Bible, like one of the audio Bibles, you could play it at night while you're sleeping. I, that, but that might work a little bit. But, uh, but straight up, there's some parts to get to, right? You have some really good dreams. <laughs> I think I want to be listening to Ezekiel in my sleep. No, we're going to have to do some things. We've got to do some stuff. And I think Asaph's order here is not accidental. I think the order matters of what he tells us. So if we're going to set our hope on God, that's where he wants us to be. He wants us to set our hope on God. We, we need to have a basis for that hope. Because you've got to remember, in the, in the Bible, hope, hope is not like, I hope I get a new guitar for Christmas. My daughter, the one who I've told you before is, is a master of giving gifts, got me a handmade leather guitar strap from Ukraine with 1 Corinthians 9.23 engraved on it. But see, all my guitars already have straps. <laughs> <laughs>
Now I have a Paul Reed Smith 20th anniversary edition custom 22 electric. And I thought, boy, they would look really good side by side in my office. But I successfully resisted that temptation. Not today, Satan! <laughs> and I have not added to my guitar collection. That is not the kind of hope the Bible's talking about. Hope is being assured that I can trust and rely on something. It's a sure thing. You can count on whatever you hope in. So setting my hope on God means that despite whatever evidence there might be to the contrary, that I am firmly committed to him and that he is firmly committed to me. That even when everything else seems to be failing, when everything else seems to be just flailing around us, we are firm in our commitment to the one who is firmly committed to us. We know we can count on God, we can set our hope on Him, because He has left us a record of His works as proof of His trustworthiness. The basis for that hope is God has put it out there for everybody to see the record of His works. I know I can trust God because I can look at what He's done. This is why not forgetting the works of God is a seriously important charge. The second thing there, right? Set my hope. Not forget. Because we're forgetful. When I need to run errands, okay? Maybe you do this too. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just a nerd. I don't know. I take a post-it note, and I list all the places I have to go and do in the order that makes the circle from my house the most efficiently that brings me back to my house. Because I also want to save gas. Okay? And then I stick the post-it on my steering wheel so I don't forget where I'm going. I make a grocery list because if I do not make a grocery list, I guarantee you I will go to the grocery store, buy the groceries, come home, and the next night be making whatever I thought I was going to make for dinner, because the first thing I do is I make out a menu for the week, and then I figure out what I need. But if I don't make a list, I will forget something that I need, and there I will be making egg bites and realize I forgot to buy feta cheese. And off to the store I'll go. I mean, think of how often we just forget birthdays or anniversaries, right? It's not that we don't hold those dates in high importance. It's just our brains are really bad at remembering. So we need to set our hope in God because we know deep down that hoping in anything or anyone else will at some point let us down. You know, it, it sometimes shocks newly married couples when they've been married a while and they suddenly realize that their spouse is not magically fulfilling all of their needs and just making every part of their life wonderful and <coughs> realize no one human can do that for another human. I mean, a spouse can fulfill some needs, and a friend's others, and a trusted mentor or advisor others, and family other needs, but all of them are going to let us down to some degree. God will not. We set our present and eternal hope only in Him, and to do that, we must remember the works of God, because they reinforce and remind us every day 
why we can trust him. And he's trustworthy because he always keeps his promises. He never abandons his people. He redeems, and he rescues, and he provides, and he protects. Even if it's sometimes through the fire, instead of from the fire. And see, if you have not studied the works of God, you wouldn't know what I'm referencing. But if you've studied the marvelous works of God, you know what story I'm talking about. And then the table is a special kind of remembering the mighty works of God, because we're reminded of how far God would go for us to cleanse us from our sins that we committed against him, to make it possible for us to be adopted as his children and receive eternal life. The table, the bread, the cup reminds us that since we could not do anything other than receive the wages of our own sin, which is eternal death, eternal separation from him and his glorious holiness, that he took it upon himself to solve our sin and death problem. He came and he took on flesh as Jesus, whose birth we, we just spent a month remembering. Why do we have holidays? So we remember. Why do we have Advent? So we remember. Why do we have Easter? So we remember. Then he rose from the dead after he paid the prescribed penalty, death, in our place. He conquered death. He made salvation available to everyone who would set their hope on Jesus and on him alone. God loves us. He set Jesus for us and is our entire hope and stay. Plant your flag on that hill. Now remember I said the order of these three things matters. We set our hope in God. We do so because he has shown himself completely trustworthy and faithful and loving, especially in sending Jesus our Savior and Lord, and he's given us the record of that. And when we do that, the third thing becomes something we deeply desire, and that is the keeping of his commandments. See, this is the thing. God loves us so much that not only did he send Jesus, not only has he left us a record of his mighty works to show us he is for us and not against us, but he's given us a plan for living. He wants us to have a life that is both fulfilling for us and honoring to him. Not because he's some sort of narcissist or something, but because as creator, he knows what's best. He's proven trustworthy, and he really sincerely wants what's best for us. God wants what's best for us. He knows the best thing for us in every situation is for us to become more like Jesus. Because Jesus is literally the embodiment of perfection. So he tells us to do some things. And he tells us not to do some other things. Not because he doesn't want you to have any fun. God is having fun. Not because he wants bad things or he just likes to dangle you around and see you suffer, but because he knows what's best. You know, when I started training in the gym and had a trainer, he told me to do some things. And he told me not to do some other things. And we had goals. And he knew how to get me to those goals. And so, for example, when your trainer tells you that you should pin your shoulders back and lock your lats when you're deadlifting, and you don't, you end up doing damage to your shoulder. 
like Jesus. Because there is literally nothing better in the universe for a human being than to be like Jesus. And to become more and more like Jesus, we have to keep his commandments. He knows there are things that are bad for us. He knows there are things that are good for us. He knows how to move us toward being more like Jesus. And because we've set our hope in him, and we remember the record of his works, we know he knows what's best, even when we struggle to do what's best. But we also know he will never leave us nor forsake us. But, for our own good sometimes, will allow us to suffer the consequences of going against his will. So sometimes when we do the things that are bad for us, he will allow the consequences to take place so that we learn not to do those things again. Sort of like how I'm real careful to pin my shoulders back and lock my lats when I'm doing the deadlift. And this is where reading and remembering come together. All of this is to get us to understand that we easily forget. We forget his works that show what we can trust him. We forget his commands. We forget that we often need to reset our hope in him, maybe on a daily or, or even an hourly basis. Because life is tough. And things go bad sometimes. And you know what? People get sick. And the car breaks down. And work suddenly is not working out. And our friends said something bad about us. But yet, we have that record. That record that contains both God's works and his commands, right? That record, right there. It contains the proof of his faithfulness. It contains the principles we need to live a life that is moving closer to Jesus. That is why every year, like a broken record, I stand up here on the first Sunday of the year with me exhorting and pleading and asking and prodding and praying that all of us will commit ourselves to reading God's word regularly. Reading to remember. Because how will we remember the record of God's mighty works or the principles and the commands that in his love and his wisdom he has given us if we do not get regular reminders of those things? Now, on the back table, I have left for you a variety of Bible reading plans if you want one. Or maybe you have one you like. Most study Bibles have some sort of Bible reading plan in them. Do you know they even make a, a chronological Bible that goes in historical order through the Bible? Well, look, I have one right here. I would loan it to you if you wanted to use it. It's pretty slick. I did this one here. It's a lot of fun goes through how things would have happened historically. Um, kind of ties everything together. It's, it's really cool. I mean, it's, it's pretty awesome. You can, you can try something out. You can maybe try an experiment. You know one year, you know what I did? 40 is a significant number in the Bible, right? I did a 40-day plan where I read the entire Bible in 40 days. That's 30 chapters a day. Probably why I need glasses to read. <laughs> so I got Bible reading plans back there if you need one. Or one. Bible has 1,193 chapters. That means you need to average about 3.27 chapters a day to do it in a year. 
But you know what? That's pretty ambitious. Maybe daily Bible reading is kind of new to you. That's okay. I got no problem with that. How about a chapter a day? Get through about a third of the Bible in a year. That's all right. Because it's not necessarily about quantity. It's about getting into God's love letter for us and hearing him speak to us through his word. Maybe try a chapter a day. Maybe if you've never had a habit of Bible reading at all, honestly, if you started out just getting in there and reading a few verses every day, I would dance a dance of joy. Now, I'd only do it privately because I don't want you to have to see that. I would be thrilled for you. Of course, I also know, I also know, if you start getting in there and you make it a regular habit, that pretty soon you'll want more and you want more and you want more and you read more and you read more. And don't tell the pastor I said this. But you know, if you're just starting out and you gotta maybe skip a few of those genealogies, or you need to skip the book of Leviticus, I get it. I do. Maybe start with Luke or John, that's cool. Start somewhere. Get in there and read some. You know, it's okay to work on walking before you start running. And eventually, I promise, you'll be doing a Bible reading ultramarathon. It just takes a little time. So let me give you a few practical reminders about Bible reading. It is a discipline. So you've got to commit. It's a discipline. It does. Because there's going to be some days you're like, you don't feel like it. Okay? It's like anything. It's like brushing your teeth or whatever. It's a discipline. Got to commit. Got to do it. You gotta set a time and a place and use that regularly because you want it to become a habit. Okay? The worst thing you can do is say, I'll get to it before I go to bed, because you never will. Okay? I never get to anything that I say I'll do it before I go to bed. Because the only thing I want to do is go to bed. And you know I go to bed early. I stayed up late last night on New Year's Eve. I did not go to bed till 8.45. <laughs> yourself up if you miss a day. <coughs> Just don't miss two days in a row. If you've never done this before, start small. That's okay. Do not set yourself some ridiculously ambitious goal. If you've, if you've never had a daily habit of Bible reading, don't, don't sit down this afternoon and go, man, Pastor, really, really, I really need to read my Bible, so I'm going to commit to reading that 3.27 chapters a day. Maybe, maybe just start saying, I'm going to read a chapter of Genesis every day this month. Cool. There's some cool stuff in there. You'll, you'll enjoy Genesis. got some neat stuff. Great times. Now, if you've been Bible reading regularly for some time, a lot of you have been, I know you have been, switch it up with a different plan. You know, try something different. Or a different translation. See, one of the great things about being an English reader is there are so many translations of the Bible. It is, it's actually sort of ridiculous when you think about it. Switch it up, try something different. If you usually read the ESV, try the NIV, or the CSB, or the NASB, whatever. Find something, find something different, that's okay. Remember, this is about growing 
not meant to be a legalistic chore. It's meant to be something that is awesome for us. It's meant to be a time to remember and to grow in how much God loves us. It's a time to set our hope on him and remember his works and keep his commandments. So I mean, in the end, if we're going to keep our hope set in God, we need to be constantly reminded how amazing he is and how much he loves us. How much God is for us and not against us forever and always. And when we do that, it's going to lead to us wanting to live how he knows is best for us. So we've got to do our part. And our part starts with this book right here. That's where it starts. Filled with all those principles and those promises and the words words of life, the words that lead to Jesus, who is our Savior, and who is our Lord, and who is literally life himself. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word. Thankful for your written record, not only of all your mighty works and acts and deeds, things meant to encourage and strengthen and guide us, but Lord, your word that tells us of Jesus, your word that tells us how to live, your word that does amazing things and transforms our lives, full of your promises, full of the proof that we can set our hope fully in you, that you're fully trustworthy, that you're for us and not against us. Help us this year to commit ourselves to be students of your word, your love letter to us, that we might be encouraged and strengthened. Give you the glory for it in Jesus' name.